Please now turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 11, where we'll pick up at verse 1 and read through verse 13. Luke chapter 11 from verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs." And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pray now for Your Spirit as we come to the study of Your Holy Word this morning. As ever, we are in need of that same Spirit who inspired Luke as he wrote these words to come and be our tutor as we study them. May you come and lead us on, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week we came to the end of our studies in 2 Timothy, and we are about to return to our studies in Isaiah, picking up where we left off at the beginning of the summer in chapter 28. However, uh, my timing's a little off, and uh, as I mentioned in the announcements, I'm about to be out of the pulpit for a couple of weeks, and so instead of starting an Isaiah and then stopping only to take it up again in a few weeks, I thought this morning we'd just do a little one-off, and we would spend some time looking into prayer and into specifically what we could call the mechanics of prayer. When we come to prayer, we really can divide our thinking up, I think, into two categories. We have, on the one hand, the economics of prayer. So, we think about the context of grace in which we approach God in prayer, right? So, when we talk about the economics of prayer, we're talking about that radical security that we have in Christ, knowing that in Christ, God is our Abba Father, and He is always wholly inclined to do us good. It is that context in which we approach God in prayer. But on the other hand, we have what we could call the mechanics of prayer. 
This is the nuts and bolts of how we approach God in prayer, just what it is that we do when we come to God in prayer. And it's important that we study both of these things. It's important for us to spend some time thinking about the economics of our prayer so that we understand those great spiritual dynamics that are going on. But it's also important that we understand the mechanics of prayer because it is so easy for us to get knocked off track with this and begin to unwittingly bring in what can only be called pagan notions of how we get God to hear and answer us when we pray. And it is frighteningly easy to have a good theology of prayer, but functionally to revert to a faulty understanding of how to get God to hear us and answer us. It is frighteningly easy to have a good economy of prayer, but a bad mechanics of prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus has just given instructions on prayer, as He does as part of His Sermon on the Mount. And in the context of those instructions on prayer, this is the very thing that He accuses the Pharisees and the scribes of doing. And in Jesus, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, accuses the Pharisees and the scribes in the most pointed and barbed way, right? Remember, these are the most devout Jews of their day. The Pharisees and the scribes, remember, we, we talked about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I said there's been these efforts to try and rehabilitate the Pharisees. That's kind of a, a cool and trendy thing to do just now, to try and rehabilitate some of the characters of Scripture. I said last week, people try to do with Demas. Say, well, maybe Demas didn't apostatize. Maybe he just got fed up with Paul's style of ministry and went and served somewhere else. You even hear people do it with Judas. Every Easter, there'll be something coming out about Judas, and can we rehabilitate Judas? And people do it with the Pharisees and the scribes. And they try to make them not quite as bad as we think of them now. In all of these, there's maybe something to be discerned, and certainly with the Pharisees, we can descend into thinking of them as these kind of wart-faced, hand-rubbing villains, kind of Dickensian backstreet villains. And we have to understand that they weren't, right? These were, these were men who were devoted to the law, upright men men of integrity, men who, who held standards, and men who would have professed a deep love for God and who would have even understood their need for the grace of God. Men who were devoted to temple worship that was centered around substitutionary atonement. Now, the Pharisees well, they got right, they got a lot more wrong. And this is what Jesus is targeting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus accuses them of praying, quote, as the Gentiles do. You can imagine this must have struck these men. It's like a, a blow to the gut. These are the paradigms of Judaism. And Jesus says to them, Pharisees, when you pray, you pray 
like the pagan Romans when they go into their temples. And Jesus further defines it. He says specifically, what you do is you heap up empty phrases thinking that you will be heard for your many words. That is what the Gentiles do. That's what the pagans do. Jesus says that is, the, is an idolatrous understanding of prayer. And it is one of these moments in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is deconstructing popular notions of worship and interacting with God and leading His disciples to a more faithful and pure understanding. Right, and we, we get that, we understand it, and we, we affirm it, right? We, we see, we know what Jesus is saying. We've heard the stories of the Pharisees, how they would time their, their times of prayer so that they would get caught, caught on the synagogue steps and their way in so that they would have to pray in front of many people, right? These were men, for as much as they were devoted, also loved the show of it all. We can agree with it, and we can assent to what Jesus is saying, but we have to realize that that is an approach to prayer that we can very easily slip into as well without really realizing it. It is so easy for us to, to approach God in prayer believing that He will hear me more if I pray longer or if I pray more often. But it is an approach that believes that God is more likely to answer my prayer if I ask for it more regularly. And that is exactly what Jesus is tackling here in Luke 11. And this little parabolic section that Jesus brings in, driving home to His disciples, to us, how the security that we have in our union with God leads us to a peaceful trust that God will answer our prayers. Jesus teaching His disciples, teaching us that our economics of prayer changes our mechanics of prayer. So, Jesus has just given His disciples another lesson on prayer. Now, this should encourage you. If we harmonize the Gospels, it seems that this is a conversation that Jesus had to have with His disciples more than once, right? The disciples struggle to get their minds around prayer. And so, it seemed to be Matthew 6, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, now here, Luke 11, later on in the course of that public ministry, the disciples are still struggling to get their minds around this. And so, Luke 11, at the beginning, Jesus is praying in a certain place. So, it seems the disciples are watching Jesus pray, and there's something about it that makes them think, He's not praying like we pray. So, once He's done, they come and say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught His disciples to pray. And Jesus gives them here this abbreviated form of the Lord's prayer. Now, the fact that Jesus had to have this conversation so many times with His disciples should be encouraging to us. Prayer was hard for them, and that comforts us, because prayer is hard for us, isn't it? We don't want to admit it. It seems so very unspiritual to admit that we struggle with prayer. But as someone once said, if you want to make virtually any Christian feel bad, just ask him how his prayer life is. 
It's, it's hard. Prayer is hard. It's hard for us. None of us pray as much as we want to pray. And here, reassuringly, we see it's hard for the disciples too. And so, so Jesus, after he has prayed, is asked for this instruction and prayer. And Jesus gives them this abbreviated form of the Lord's Prayer. And we wouldn't be surprised if he just stops there, right? Matthew 6, he, he moves on. But here in Luke 11, he adds something else. He brings in this parable, or this series of parables. He says to them, which of you is a friend? will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed, and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask it, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And you see what Jesus is doing here. He's just given a very... Uh, didactic, just clear instruction on prayer. Jesus teaches to pray as John taught his disciples. So Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. Right? That, that pattern of prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's a framework. You want to know how to pray? Pray like this. Pray this. You can just pray the Lord's Prayer, but use it as a structure for your prayers. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. And with these parables, he really is inviting his disciples now to engage in a, in a thought experiment. He wants his disciples to put themselves into these scenarios and to feel the full impact of them, right? That's why he opens with that question, which of you, right? He wants his disciples to come inside these parables to understand the dynamics of what's going on. And the first scene that Jesus lays out in verses 5 through 8 is one that would have been absolutely and utterly scandalizing to his first century listeners. Right? Maybe us in our 21st century individualistic scenario if a neighbor comes and knocks on my door at midnight, I may well say what this guy says. Like, not just now, we're in bed, come back in the morning. Right? We, maybe it's a little rude, perhaps, but not shocking. Not an unexpected answer. But in the first century, this vignette is absolutely full of cultural scandal. This situation is that this man has a friend who's arrived unexpectedly during the night. So this man's in his home. Here's a knock on the door. He opens the door, and here's his friend. Didn't know he was coming. Like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Glad you're here. Come in to my home. I will, I will put you up for the night. This is wonderful. And the expectation is that that friend 
will now be cared for and provided with a suitable meal. That is the first century expectation. The first time, day or night, a friend comes into your house, a meal is laid before them, right? I think we've all heard of similar cultures in the Middle East that do the same kind of thing. Or in, or in Africa, you know of people that will impoverish themselves in order to put on a meal for the, the weary traveler who's arrived on their door. But this householder, of course, not expecting company, has finished the day's spread. Remember, this is a day before preservatives and a day before freezers. So, you don't buy a loaf of bread at the beginning of the week. So, at last, you, you bake bread in the morning, you eat it during the day, and then you make another loaf the next morning. This is nighttime. The day's bread is gone. And so, desperate to show hospitality to his friend, he goes to his next-door neighbor. And the expectation would be that the next-door neighbor would eagerly jump to the assistance of our man here. Right In the first century Near Eastern culture, as one commentator put it, to share friendship was to share honor. And so, the conventions of hospitality would mean that not just the man and his neighbor, but really the whole village would be compelled to provide this weary traveler with a decent meal. Right In the minds of the disciples, this, sin, this scenario plays out. The traveler arrives, and the man doesn't have anything. He goes to his neighbor. His neighbor wakes his household, says, we have to put on something for this man. If he doesn't have enough, then they knock on the next door, and the next door, and the next door, and they pile what little they have in order to give this man a decent meal at the end of his journey. The whole village would have come together to share the friendship and share the honor of showing hospitality to this man. But instead, the neighbor replies in a way that we think is just a little rude, but that would have taken away the breath of those who heard Jesus tell this story. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. This is, this is shocking. This is a profound affront to the traveler, it is a affront to the neighbor. It is even an affront to the village in which they live. This man, this neighbor, reluctant to help because it would cause him an inconvenience. Right? And it would have been an inconvenience. This is likely a, a one-room peasant home, kind of house in which everyone, including the animals, would have slept indoors, likely a barn on the ground floor and the family's living quarters on the first floor. So, for this man to get up, the baby would have started crying, the cow would start mooing, the, the rooster might start crowing. It's going to be a disturbance, but that's all it's going to be. And this man is unwilling to do that. He is not willing to be inconvenienced to help his friend. And so, he disgraces his neighbor instead. But of course, the man will not leave. And apparently, he keeps knocking and asking, and as the ESV puts it, because of his impudence, his neighbor gets up and answers the door. Or the New American Standard says, because of his persistence, the word 
literally means his shamelessness. So our man is not willing to just skulk back through the night to his friend and say, I'm sorry, I couldn't get you anything. He stands there pounding on the door, and eventually the man relents and begrudgingly gives our man what he needs. But listen carefully to how Jesus then follows on as he gives this vital point about prayer. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who, to the one who knocks it will be opened. The danger with this passage is that it is easy to assume that verses 5, 6, and 7 are an illustration of verses 9 and 10. And it's easy for us to read this and assume that Jesus is telling us that we should be persistent in prayer like the man was with his neighbor. And because of that persistence, it will be open to us, and we will receive what we have asked for, and we will find what we are seeking. And in fact, I have multiple Bibles in which I have written in the margin right next to this text, an exhortation to myself to be more impudent in my prayers, to be more persistent in my prayers, to be more tenacious in the requests that I make to God. But listen, that is the exact opposite of the point that Jesus is making here. Jesus is not setting the scene in verses 5, 6, and 7 of an illustration of how we should approach God in prayer. Rather, He is giving that as an illustration of the opposite of how we approach God in prayer. Verses 5, 6, and 7 are not an illustration of how the godly pray. They are an illustration of the mistaken belief, that fundamentally pagan belief, that God has to be convinced and coerced into hearing us and answering us when we pray. And we see that, don't we, in the counterpart illustration with which Jesus follows this up. Verses 11 and 12, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And then he follows it up with the question, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, i.e., the best of gifts, to those who ask Him? You see the logic here. In this second vignette, Jesus sets up a reprehensible situation. A wicked father who cruelly and maliciously responds to the request of his little child. A reprehensible situation in which you have a wicked father who, when his, his son asks him for a fish, gives him a serpent. A, a cruel father, when his son asks him for an egg, gives him a scorpion instead. It's, it's horrible. And he sets up this reprehensible situation to set into vivid contrast the truth that he is teaching his disciples about how God deals with his children's requests. That we have no fear that when we ask for a good thing, God will give us a bad thing. That's what Jesus is saying. We have no 
fear that God will deal cruelly with us when we come to Him in prayer, that even if we who are evil understand the wickedness of the cruel father in this story, then how much more can we be confident that the holy, good, true, kind, merciful God will only give good things to His children in response to their requests? A reprehensible situation set up in order to highlight the truth about God and prayer. It's the same thing that Jesus is doing in the first part. Jesus sets up a shocking situation in which, he, in which the actions of the neighbor are reprehensible. And we who are evil can recognize the reprehensibility of this man's actions, just like we can understand the cruelty of the Father in the second story. Jesus' point, as He explains in verses 9 and 10, is that that is not the way that God answers our prayers. We don't come to God and find Him reluctant to answer our request to the point where we need to badger Him into hearing us. It's never a situation in which God turns a deaf ear to our request, and so we need to be impudent, shameless in beating down His door and forcing Him to do something He does not want to do and give us the thing that we have asked for. That's Jesus' point. That's what He is saying here, that we are not heard by God because of our persistence. We are heard by God because He is wholly inclined to give good gifts to His children. Instead of one who is reluctant to answer the cries of the needy, Jesus says that with God, when we ask, it is given. When we seek, we find. When we knock, God doesn't say the door is bolted, go away. He opens that door. Jesus is not giving us a model for prayer in verses 5 through 9. Instead, He is actually setting up this antithetical situation to bring into sharp contrast the glorious truth that for Christians, there is a free, even an eager response on the part of God to our prayers. And here's what this means. First, a negative. Don't take away from this that you shouldn't pray for something more than once. This is not teaching us that we should not pray for something more than once. Paul prayed. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 three times that the thorn in his side be removed. And he wasn't rebuked for asking more than once, only given the answer that even that was a good gift from God to draw him to lean more fully on the strength of Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord prayed sinlessly three times that if it be possible, the cup of God's wrath pass from Him. It is not wrong 
to pray for something more than once. Just go to the prayer book in the middle of your Bibles and read how many times David prays for virtually the same thing. It is not wrong to pray for something more than once. Some of you have been praying for your children for years, praying that God would break their hearts and open eyes and unstop their hearts. You've been praying for them so that they might hear the gospel as we just prayed earlier and come and stand next to us in church giving God the glory. Some of you have been praying for relief from illness or for yourself or for a loved one for years and years. Some of you have been trapped in a job that seems to suck the life out of you and have been praying for months, maybe years, that God would move you out and give you a place where you would flourish. None of that is, is wrong. So don't take away from this that you shouldn't pray for something more than once. That's not the lesson. The lesson is, don't make the mistake of thinking that the more you pray about it, the more likely God is to answer it. The more likely you are to ask for something, the more likely God is to give you that thing. But it's not wrong to pray for something more than once, even for years. It's not wrong to be persistent in prayer, but it is wrong to think that because you have asked and asked and asked, then God must soon, like the reluctant neighbor, have to answer you because of your persistence. It is wrong to slip into an understanding of prayer that says, if I have been praying for this for years, then I must be on the cusp of breaking God's will and having Him cave and give me the thing I've been asking for. And then listen, this is where our theology of prayer strikes our practice of prayer, isn't it? This is where our economy of prayer hits the mechanics of our prayers. The 20th century theologian A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, once wrote, the popular belief about prayer reduces God to a servant, our servant, doing our bidding, granting our desires. No, prayer is coming to God, telling Him my need, and leaving Him to deal with it as He sees fit. This makes my will subject to His and not the other way around. The underlying, the underpinning formative truth that runs through the New Testament, that really runs through all of Scripture, is that in Christ we have this absolutely radical security that enables us to simply let our care and concern be known to God and then trust Him to deal with it as He sees fit. Right? Unlike that disgraceful neighbor, in Christ God is never reluctant to give us good things. In Christ, we have already been granted, Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, following on in Ephesians 1, we have been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, granted an inheritance, and predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
And our economics of prayer says that in Christ, God has become to us our Abba Father, that we have been transformed from being liable to the curse of God into receiving this lavish favor of God. In Christ, we were once cut off from God because of our sin, but now we have been brought near to God. But remember our our word, God has been propitiated by the work of Christ. His wrath turned into His favor. By faith in Christ, by confident trust in Christ's atoning work, we who were by nature and nurture, by disposition and action, rebels against God, traitors and deniers of the crown rights of God, we have now been made into loyal subjects, knowing that King Jesus is not capricious and cruel and withholding, but knowing that He is an utterly benevolent King who delights to give good things to His subjects. And what that means is that when we come to God in prayer, we have this absolute confidence that He is wholly inclined to do us good and to answer our prayers in the best possible way. He will not give us a serpent when we ask for a fish. He will not give us a scorpion when we ask for an egg. And He will not tell us to go away when we come to Him with our needs. In the love of God shown to us in Christ, we have this fundamental security. In Christ, we have this new relationship to God, a relationship of grace and favor, a relationship of abundant blessing that informs and shapes how we approach God as we pray. We don't have to convince Him to answer us. We don't have to come to Him afraid that we won't say the right thing in the right way at the right time, and so He won't give us what we ask for. Instead, we come before a gracious and a merciful God who in Christ is our Abba Father. Because of that gospel, we can simply trust Him with our prayers, and in that trust, simply tell Him our needs and leave Him to deal with them as He sees fit. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the relationship we have with You now in Christ, it is so good that we struggle to believe it. Oh, as Your servant of old prayed, so we come now and say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Beat the gospel into our hard heads and help us to understand this relationship we have with you in Jesus. Lord, we don't want to become presumptuous in prayer, of course. We want to heed the apostles' exhortation not to grow weary in well-doing. When it comes to prayer, we want to be committed to prayer, but help us to see that we never need to try to twist your arm, but that you are ready, eager even, to give us good things when we ask. Oh, Lord, there is a lot here. 
We can think of the questions that arise then about good things that we have asked and have not been granted, but help us simply today to camp here and in the knowledge that you will always help us find what we seek, that it will always be open to us when we knock, and that we will always receive when we ask. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.